Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from the OECD's Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 proposals to the world's most impactful geopolitical developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, I'm thrilled to have Dr. Alexis Crow back on the show. Alexis holds a PhD from the London School of Economics and is the global head of PwC's geopolitical investing practice, helping leading companies and asset managers with global investment decisions. Alexis, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, the last time I think I had you on the podcast, we were actually in front of a live studio audience, which I can't believe was over two years ago. In, in the spring of 2019. So it's now the end of June, 2021. And I understand that you've been writing out the entire pandemic in New York City, specifically Brooklyn. I was there a few weeks ago. The curfews hadn't lifted yet for bars and restaurants, but how is New York City doing? You know, Doug, I have to say, if there's one place to spend the pandemic, although we had, you know, bore the brunt of the cases at some points during the pandemic in the US, um, it's New York because New York is the world. So as a global traveler, I felt very comfortable being surrounded by the Italian communities, you know, the Dominican communities, the French communities. Um, and what was interesting as a data point was, you know, talking about the COVID exodus from certain gateway cities. Um, most of my friends from other countries remained in New York. They held steady, you know, they picked up things like bikes or musical instruments, but, um, but by and large, it, we've been here, we've weathered the storm, and, and I'm definitely happy that summer's here, and I'm definitely looking forward to our next in-person session together. Absolutely. And uh, by the way, that the, the, mu the musical instrument is not just a New York City thing. My wife actually picked up the ukulele. Uh, I, it didn't last very long for me, but she's, uh, she's gotten quite talented, in fact. So it's not just a Brooklyn <laughs> thing for our, for our listeners. All right, so let's get into the reason that I have you here to talk about geopolitics and macroeconomics. You recently co-authored a fascinating paper called The Global Trade Map After COVID-19, Where To for Global Companies, Investors, and Policymakers for the Observer Research Foundation. We'll include a link in the show notes. In that paper, you and Samir Saran touched on topics very important to our listeners, including globalization, the rise in protectionism, including trade wars and policy, how global trade has committed to economic growth in developing countries, and the shift to a service-based economy in developed countries around the world. Most importantly, you take on the question, is this the end of globalization as we know it? So before we get into the details, because I want to unpack how we get there, how we got here, and where we're going, but I want to start with the big question. Dr. Crow, is the end of globalization upon us? Certainly not. Uh, and we can see that with a lot of the data that's come out through 2020, um, most notably from the World Trade Organization uh, and the movement of goods and merchandise and volume of goods around the world. The contraction during 2020 was less than half of the contraction on a global basis uh, than the trough of 2009. Now, why is that exceptional? Um, partly because a lot of the countries that have been moving goods and services around um, were not hit in the GFC. So some of the emerging market and developing economies um, that were impacted by COVID uh, continuing to export goods around the world, such as China, such as Brazil. Um, so this is, I think, very impressive and notable. Um, for those 
uh, viewers or listeners who are waiting on their shipment of their washing machines or their furniture or design products from from Europe or from China or from Asia, I think is important to note that we're still moving um, you know, exceptional amounts of goods around the world. This has certainly been an investing in goods trade while a lot of people have been working from home and prevented from engaging in services oriented activity uh, in terms of economic and consumption transactions. And so that's, I think, very important to note. You can look at this with the spike in costs and shipping. Um, even one notable um, uh, Dow 50 company pointing to uh, bottlenecks in the port of Los Angeles as, as, a, as a pain point for U.S. sales. So um, we certainly are moving goods around the world. Um, we are beginning to move services around the world with the resumption of, of some um, air traffic uh, activity. We are even in an era of e-digitalization and e-globalization, according to which um, some companies from around the world are using AI to be able to service others uh, who are locked in uh, throughout the lockdowns and working from home. And we are actually starting to see a resumption of a pickup in cross-border finance or macro finance with some of the U.S. banks starting to invest more in Europe as well. I think that that's a great macro lens. I guess a couple of comments and reactions to that is, is first of all, we've had a broken dishwasher for like four months and it's actually supposed to show up today. So that hits particularly at home and uh, I, I have officially been the, the dishwasher, but we're very excited to now have a, a dishwasher machine. But it, it has been just interesting to see how those supply chains and supply chains have been impacted, particularly that those personal kind of uh, stories. But as an international tax advisor that it, it's music to our ears. The globalization is not ending. And I think my experience as a tax advisor is very consistent with what you described. We've certainly seen major changes to supply chains. And frankly, some of that, a lot of that started even before COVID-19. We saw you know, the protectionism come in, you know, with Brexit, with the Trump administration, some of the changes in trade policy. And so obviously as tax advisors, we've been working with companies on on major changes to the supply chains, which obviously some has been exacerbated by COVID-19. So let's uh, maybe start with how the landscape has shifted and how we we got here. One of the things that you talk about in, in the paper is how the globalization of the economy, and I think about you know when I was in university in the 90s and I went to the University of Missouri um, where we spent a lot of time talking about just-in-time inventory and the globalization of supply chains really and technology allowing for companies and particularly retailers to really be able to, to be able to, you know, to squeeze the, the, the supply chain, right? The timing on, on the supply chain. And it's been amazing since I started in this profession in 99, how just globalization has continued to expand beyond the world's biggest companies to even the world's smallest companies. And I think one of the things that you mentioned in the article is how that has lifted people out of poverty in emerging and developing countries. It has also obviously resulted in the shifting of manufacturing out of some of the more developing countries consequentially resulting in income inequality in some of those developed countries. So maybe if you could just talk a little bit about, about that and, and how we got here. Sure. I think I'll, I'll take that in first in, in how we got here and then how COVID has, has impacted this as well and shifted the landscape. I mean, firstly, in terms of globalization, important to define and break down what's in a word. It's obviously uh, become an emotionally and politically charged term uh, in, within the last five years. 
So globalization, according to which we mean the process by which faster transaction times uh, and technology implemented around the world in the 1990s enabled a faster movement of goods, services, people, and this was facilitated by finance and facilitated again by technology. Um, and so, you know, this carrying out, um, I would say, you know, as you noted, there has been an extraordinary reduction of inequality on a global scale, lifting billions of people out of poverty. Um, so China obviously is the notable example here, um, where we saw an exceptional era of double digit growth uh, throughout the 2000s even. Um, India is of course the next country that people are looking at. Um, elements of Latin America during the commodity super cycle as well. And then as you also note, emerging Asia, um, where we've seen a wage diaspora trickle from, if you think about manufacturing activity, um, trickling down from Japan to South Korea, uh, to China, and now down into ASEAN countries such as Vietnam and then South Asian countries such as Bangladesh. And obviously India is looking to be able to pick up some of that activity. Um, notably, when we start to think about how we got to the question of the end of globalization, Notably, this reduction of poverty on a global scale was matched by an increase in inequality within advanced economies. And if you look at the work of, of someone such as including David Otter at MIT, um, the globalization of labor markets is but one contributing factor um, to a hollowing out of the middle class in America. Um, there have been other domestic flat factors at play that have contributed um, to a huge spread in livelihoods um, for the bottom of the income distribution and the top of the income distribution. Um, but nevertheless, the fact that this inequality has been rapidly expanding in advanced economies since the 1970s, also including France, Italy, the UK, um, what has happened is that has been simultaneous with this increase in wealth uh, and income for, for other countries. And so, you know, there has been a proclivity or propensity for politicians on both the left and the right to be able to point to that wealth creation uh, as a zero-sum game and as a, as a direct causal impact of an increase in poverty. Um, and so, you know, what I would say is that whereas in the 2000s we contended with some of the dark side of globalization, uh, so transnational risks such as international terrorism, uh, you know, financial degradation, uh, environmental degradation, um, and, and risks that could be easily spread through the, the bright side of globalization, which were these conduits of finance and the movement of people and goods and services. So we contended with this dark side that did create a moment for cohesion and for uh, positive policy coordination uh, by on behalf of a lot of governments. And then what I would say is in the wake of the great financial crisis, um, you know, inequality continuing to sharpen and rise, according to which the bottom parts of the income distribution had had stagnant wage growth um, and then started to compete with the increase in the cost of basic units of living and basic assets of need, such as housing and healthcare in the United States, such as housing in Canada, such as housing in France and the UK. Um, and, and transport in France and the UK. And this was eating into people's livelihoods. And there was a sense of economic anxiety that was very prevalent both on the right and the left. Um, and I think uh, notably in the UK, you had the referendum coming out 
um, and, 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 and garnering votes on, on, on both sides of the income spectrum against this, which is interesting. Um, and and the, here in the United States, obviously, we had the Trump administration. And so what we had, I would say, in the years leading up to COVID were these protectionist and populist movements, according to which leaders uh, such as President Trump, such as Boris Johnson, even such as Le Pen and her um, political campaigns, would react against the movement of goods, services, people, and technology. And, 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 and in each of these, we can unpack each of these. Um, I would say that even you started to see a little bit of a slowing of, the, of macro finance and globalization of finance and pulling back, although that has, has reversed and continued. Um, and so you started to see immigration policy um, really pick up in steam and, and a limitation and a curbing on, on mobility as well. Um, now I would say what we had during COVID was this unprecedented economic stops, the virus ricocheting across continents and, and back and forth in and out of countries. Now, unfortunately, what we've seen with the crisis hitting some of the, those fastest growing emerging market and developing economies is a reversal of that reduction of poverty in those emerging developing economies that we noted at the beginning. And that is very worrisome. The IMF posits that what we've seen during 2020 as a result of COVID has been 20% income losses relative to 19, 2019 levels for emerging market and developing economies versus 11% within advanced economies. So if you think about the economic activity of a country like India being brought to a standstill, or Brazil, uh, particularly as we contend with the successive variants and waves of the virus, um, this has been very concerning. And so as a result, we have seen um, a, a tendency or an allure toward addressing the post-COVID world from a lens of self-sufficiency. And you've seen that in the United States, you've seen that in India, you're, you've seen that in the five-year plan in China. And that, I think, is a little bit worrisome. I don't think it's going to contribute to the end of globalization, um, but I do think it's going to contribute to continued dislocation and the, the ability and the need for executives to remain nimble. And Doug, you mentioned just uh, in time. So therefore, I would say that in this realm, what we're seeing is a lot of, of, of OEMs and manufacturers shift to a just-in-case mentality. Um, where it's not wholesale localization or nationalization of supply chains or onshoring, it's more of, of a diversification uh, so that just in case there's an economic shutdown um, in one jurisdiction, I can get inputs from another jurisdiction. Yeah, I'm certainly seeing that, um, Alexis, across industries because, you know, supply chains have been so well defined for years and then even pre-COVID with some of the changes in trade policy that you had mentioned, with changes in immigration policy, the need to diversify those supply chains became very important. And so I think it'll be interesting to see as we come out of COVID-19, particularly with some of the policies that we saw before COVID-19. Now, of course, we obviously have a different administration, but, um, you know, how the U.S. and other economies will try to, you know, implement protectionist type measures to, to dig themselves out of the, you know, the economic consequences from COVID-19. Um, time will obviously tell. The other thing that you had mentioned, in addition to the trade policy and immigration policy in the paper, 
was tensions within the tech sector. And it's been fascinating to see how well many of the companies in that industry, because of the, the nature of the business and everybody being stuck at home and on their phones and on their computers, um, of what's taken place in that particular sector. And you talk about a technological cold war. Can you talk a little bit about that from a technology and sector perspective, um, you know, how, we, how we've gotten to, to where we are? And then we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit later in the podcast about what we're seeing from a policy perspective and from the, with the OECD, for example. Sure. So I think um, from starting from the, the broader macro angle, what was interesting to note was prior to COVID-19, the fastest amount of job creation and wage gains were happening in both advanced and emerging markets alike. Um, in services-oriented sectors and services-providing sectors. And that was at the white-collar end and the blue-collar end. Um, so if you think about some of those white-collar jobs, those are you know, a lot of the IT and tech uh, services, professional and business services and legal services, uh, financial as well. And then on the blue-collar end, um, that is you know, jobs related to hospitality, tourism, et cetera. Now, obviously during the pandemic at the blue collar end, a lot of those jobs were decimated um, and demand was destroyed, I think, uh, only to be resurrected later. Um, but at the white collar end, of course, you continued to see the ability for these companies to, to maintain their, their incredible sales stance throughout the crisis. So you know, from a macro lens, no surprise that this was able to continue to thrive. From an equity landscape, of course, we've seen the prevalence for investors to pile into the FANG companies and, and to big tech across the board in the United States, um, I think is, is a sort of an immunity play. Um, if you think about as a driver of export growth, you mentioned people on smartphones working from home. Um, what we've seen is an extraordinary step up in export activity from China um, in, in exporting some of these categories in the working from home play. So light electronic manufacturing, such as laptops, and of course, other countries such as Taiwan and, and South Korea, um, also being um, really benefiting from the ability to export semiconductor chips across the world. So that certainly held steady. Um, what I would say, and, and what we cover a lot in, in, our, in our analysis is, you know, the fact that although you've seen a, financial honeymoon between countries across the world, notably China and the United States, what we've witnessed is this technological decoupling between the two largest powers in the world. Um, and if you think about um, the change in administration, you know what we've seen in the change from, from Trump to Biden, which was what was to be expected, was a change in tone, less inflammatory, but certainly business as usual with regard to the understanding and the treatment of China as uh, not only as the EU would call it as a strategic rival or a strategic competitor, um, but certainly as a, as a threat to the national security of the United States. And that has been held steady within the Biden administration. Um, there have been efforts at dialogue. I think there will continue to be efforts. We'll have eyes on the G27, uh, G20 summit next summer, uh, sorry, next month. But what I would say here is that um, there is a divergence in perception between the understanding of the relationship between technology and national security between Beijing and Washington. And so for China, certain elements uh, within technology are considered to be within the realm of national security. For the United States, not. For the United States, it's vice versa. So for example, for China, data is a matter of national security. For the United States, it's not. 
uh, for the United States, 5G pipes and masks is a matter of national security. Um, and, and for China, it's not. And so as a result of these diverging perspectives, we've seen a decoupling of technological supply chains. And that is obviously in, you know, contributing to a complex business environment for countries and companies and investors from across the globe, um, particularly as relates to some of the OEMs and manufacturers that rely on, let's say, motherboards from China uh, and software from the United States. It's, it's contributing to a much more complex landscape. Um, and, and what I would say is that there is a direct correlation to an increase in cost of capital as well. Um, so I think this is important to point out also when you think about the fact that Europe is now very much involved in this and that, you know, from a European standpoint, what's interesting is China has unseated the US as the largest trading partner in goods from the EU to the rest of the world. And so said another way, the EU is now exporting more goods to China than to the United States. And Part of that is to do with the disruptions during the trade administration across the Atlantic. And so, you know, you have strengthening export ties between Brussels and Beijing, um, and, and particularly from some of the countries such as Germany, such as Italy, stepping up their exports to China. Um, but at the same time, you have uh, ministries of national security and foreign affairs within the European Union being very, very suspicious um, of what's going on in Beijing. And so, companies are needing to navigate these just sort of, I think, slightly shifting priorities, um, even within administrations and within policy teams. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how the Biden administration continues to, to partner with Europe and try to uh, amend some of those uh, uh, relationships um, from the prior administration, particularly as they approach China. So the other sector that I wanted to hear from you, which is I know something you spend a lot of time with, is our is the financial services sector. So uh, can you talk a little bit about the about financial services? Sure. So I think just t thinking about um, FS as a part of, of globalization, you know, what we have is is this macro finance, which is the ability for investment banks and globally systemic investment banks to uh, provide financing across the, the globe um, and to provide investment banking, uh, retail banking, etc. Um, and so I would say what we've seen, and I mentioned there was an initial pullback from COVID-19 uh, from some of the US banks to pull back at home and batten down the hatches and just make sure that we were ensuring financial stability and the ability to lend to businesses in the United States. Um, but that has since uh, come to an end, that moratorium has come to an end, and we are starting to see a renewed interest of U.S. banks across to the Eurozone. Um, and notably, what we've seen in the U.S.-China relationship is what we've called a financial honeymoon, as opposed to this divorce or decoupling in the technological sphere. According to which, the wealth management side of, of the spectrum, as well as just retail banking, um, is, a, is an opportunity that is too tantalizing to resist for many of both the U.S. bank and non-bank financial institutions. And that this attention from the U.S. banks and non-banks in mainland China and in the mainland Chinese market is matched by uh, a, a reduction of the negative list and continued reforms in the financial space um, on behalf of the PBOC and the regulators within Beijing. And so Beijing, in its efforts to continue to move toward a market economy, um, is, is continuing to invite foreign participation in its markets, particularly what we look at as the, the fickle capital space in terms of bonds and equities. 
we actually saw record U.S. inflows into Chinese equities and, and, and actually sovereign bonds um, in the wake of COVID-19, looking to be able to gain yield. If you think about the yield on a German 10-year versus the yield on a 10-year RMB bond, this was seen as much more preferable. And so that, I believe, is slight, provides us with a slight sliver of hope um, that we're not in an all-out conflict, that given the interests of some of the U.S. bank and non-bank financial institutions, as well as U.S. private equity companies stepping up their real asset portfolios uh, within mainland China, um, in the real estate space, for example, um, that this will actually keep us from the brink of a wider conflict. And so notably also, we've seen this happen with some of the European banks, um, some of the European asset managers, French asset managers, um, taking over the majority ownership of some of their um, licenses on the ground in mainland China and their JVs on the ground in mainland China. And so, you know, positioning for growth in the future. And, and I think this is, this is helpful for, for global cohesion. Yeah, the buyout of those JV partners, if you will, in China has certainly been a trend that we've seen, not just in the financial services sector, but across other sectors as well. So let's move. That's kind of how we got here. We've touched on a number of the sectors, frankly, and we could do a podcast on on each of those, Alexis. But I think that's a it's a great overview of of how we got here. So, what are some of the solutions for for global cohesion? The you talk about a couple of big trends that certainly we're seeing in the tax space, you know, as well as throughout throughout business. Um, but from a, including from a digital perspective, and then you talk about the green agendas, and then ultimately the role of Asia. So let's start with the digital realm, because I think one of the major policy components to that is, is tax policy and what we're seeing from the OECD and what we refer to as BEPS 2.0 here on the cross-border tax talks, which is our base erosion and profit shifting. We're expecting a big report later in the summer to really you know, look for a global consensus on tax policy. But let's again, let's start with, with the digital realm here on these solutions for global cohesion. What, what are you seeing in your crystal ball? Yeah, so thanks. So I think in the wake of this, you know, extraordinary demand shocks that we've seen and economic shocks across the board, you know, and the unprecedented amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus that has been thrown at the, the problem of COVID, um, it is very much in vogue to proffer digital and green solutions. And so the EU was very clear about this in its next generation um, 750 billion euro package, which in and of itself, I think is, is, is exceptional in terms of creating greater fiscal cohesion within the European Union. But the EU really put that forward as the imprimatur. And then I would say that other specific European countries as they submitted their reform plans have taken a page and a leaflet out of that book. Namely, if you look at the Italian reforms that have been put forward uh, by, by Draghi, I think that's very clear. Um, other countries are starting to also take leaps out of this book. Um, Suga-san in Japan has just submitted his plans, uh, his first economic plan to the cabinet um, last week in, in Japan. And that I think is, is very clearly focused on the energy transition, decarbonization and digitalization as, as solutions. So then we have to ask as hard-nosed economists, well, who's, where's the rubber really meeting the road? Um, in the digital space, I think what's interesting and, and, and what we highlight in, in, in our report is that, you know, we have seen a marked lack of cohesion on in terms of policy and in your world, Doug, in the tax policy um, with regard to digital taxation. This was a major stickling point um, across the Atlantic. 
Um, now what we've seen with, with Yellen coming in and the G7 summit um, and, and moves toward involving 160 other countries in negotiations um, on creating, a, you know, preventing a race to the bottom, I think is meaningful. That's going to be meaningful for countries such as France and Germany. So I would say the EU too, uh, and engaging with the U.S. on other matters as well. You've seen that with Bruno Le Maire's um, very, I would say, eager response uh, to, to the G7 summit and to Yellen's proposals. Um, and so this has been positive. I think, you know, it's going to be imperative for tech companies to figure out which companies fall under this umbrella uh, and which don't. Um, I think some of those details need to be worked out. Obviously, you have to look toward national legislation and pass, passing this as well. Um, so I think that's one clear uh, policy shift coming out of, of the wake of COVID-19. Um, you know, I would also just highlight that in the digital space, whereas we've seen tech standing in and being a very positive enabler of the working from home play, even on the education play for those that have been able to afford it, it's obviously also been a divide for those um, that have not had access to broadband. And so we've seen a massive stepping up of, of government commitments to invest in broadband across the board from a positive angle. Um, actually in our work with infrastructure investors, telecoms and broadband have been, and data centers have been the um, investing theme or the, the, the subgroup of an infra du jour uh, throughout 2020 with a lot of investors willing to pile in at very lofty valuations uh, to be able to continue to gain access for that um, as well. I would just also highlight that in the digital realm, you know, one thing that there is clear is that as we rapidly increase digitalization across the economy, and I'm not one of these bears who thinks that robots are coming for our jobs, but what I will say is there are obvious, gain, there are obvious gains and losses here. And so it will be imperative and we'll come to this on, uh, as a source of income inequality as we move toward a, you know, a new economy you know, and, and progress toward that newer economy in advanced economies and eventually in emerging market economies to help people who have been left behind without some of those white collar skills, um, which, which accrue white collar wages and white collar wealth as well. Um, so that's going to become imperative. So that's on the digital front. Um, I'll stop there and then we can turn to green. Yeah, I just wanted to make one comment. You had given a couple of examples in Europe with respect to some of the policy changes and proposals kind of post-COVID specifically focused on, on environmental. We, we also, we've seen that in the U.S. with the Biden administration's tax proposals and specifically focused on a number of green initiatives, as well as uh, coming up with kind of new novel concepts for potentially taxing digital companies, including some of the book income tax. So it's, it's fascinating to me to see you know, the cohesiveness, if you will, between policymakers in Europe and policymakers in the U.S. and for our, you know, big corporates and, and large financial institutions and investors, obviously, you know, the, these, these, these countries have spent a lot of money and they're going to be looking for ways to, to generate revenue and something that is very concerning as, as, our, as our clients think about economic recovery, also thinking about what the potential future tax implications could be, could have a significant economic impact. But Let's turn then to, to environmental and, and maybe briefly, um, what are we seeing with uh, from an environmental perspective, including, including trade climate policy and the greening of financial flows? So what's interesting, again, in the pre-COVID age, um, notably the World Economic Forum and its Global Risk Report in 2019 that came out 
um, if you break the, the risks down by age group, the age group uh, of 18 to 25, for that age group, the top 10 risks in the world were associated with sea level rise. So there's been this understanding on behalf of younger generations um, that you know we, the older generations, have left them behind in terms of our industrial policy and in in denigrating the environment. And so, you know, we've had the climate emergency um, as a as a hot topic, an increase in in climate finance products in in um, in green bonds and in in fixed income and in equities. What I would say is that in the tabula rasa that was rendered by this pandemic, and again, these promises to build back better in the green space, um, you are seeing a lot of creative policies on behalf of both governments and companies. So we've seen companies make very, very aggressive net zero commitments. We've seen countries step up and um, or bring forward their net zero commitments from, from a later date to an earlier date. Japan is an example there. Um, what, again, what we would ask is where does the rubber meet the road and who is really has the capacity to invest in this? What I would say in terms of countries, we highlight this also in, in our annual outlook for 2021. South Korea has been, um, you know, sine qua non in terms of being able to invest in the energy transition, uh, moving toward a, a Green New Deal, um, which is associated not only with equipping the country for an energy transition, but also job creation. Um, so we've really seen South Korea and some of the the Chable and the conglomerates jump on board to be able to address this. Um, even in the corporate space, you've seen a massive shift in behavior in corporates such as in Japan um, and an urging of, of companies from across sectors on the topics to be able to urge the government to continue to um, accelerate its commitments to a carbon free or a net zero future. Um, and so I think that's also been very, very important. Um, and we've, of course, continued to see the pension funds and sovereign wealth funds uh, hone their policies um, and their investment screening processes to be able to um, cater toward more of their shareholder needs and more of their investor needs uh, in terms of, of moving toward that, that, that net zero future. So there are obviously some countries and, and I would say, therefore, livelihoods that will be left behind. And when we think about a country like India, and we highlight this in the report, you know, India as some questions I get asked from policymakers, not only in India, but in other commodity exporting countries is, you countries in the West got to go through your whole old to new manufacturing uh, uh, trajectory in terms of economic growth. In other words, you went from agrarian to heavy industrial manufacturing all the way to services oriented economies. And by imposing too aggressive climate policy on us, whether it's in exporting commodities or whether or not it's in industrial production, transport, um, that you are restricting that, that, that gangbusters phase of economic growth, which is that old economy growth. So you're not allowing us to grow the pie. Um, and I would say that then it becomes incumbent upon multilateral development banks, such as, as the World Bank, such as the IFC, such as the ADB, and some in institutional investors to be able to help those uh, who don't have the capital to put to work to navigate the energy transition. So we've seen in the tax space, we've seen some debate on this um, with, the, with the border adjustment tax on carbon um, 
within the EU. And I think there's certainly some, some ire coming from India on that, that you're not allowing India to export in a way that it, it otherwise could, that it therefore is cast in a sort of protectionist or nationalist light. Something also critical, you know, we talked about climate finance. Um, you know, I think some of those financing flows are going to have to go from north to south and from west to east um, in, in a meaningful way that we haven't necessarily witnessed yet. And part of that, what we do in working with investors is to think about how do you navigate the risk reward ratio uh, in terms of investing in a place in, say, wind and solar assets in Brazil versus Spain. Um, so this is something that we address, and I think, you know, other countries will be looking to investors to be able to attract some of those FDI flows. And I, I will remind my listeners, you, you, you said, you talked, you mentioned the border adjusted tax for carbon. Um, that is different than the border adjusted tax concept that was proposed during the, the Trump administration, but I'm sure a number of people's ears perked up, but uh, I guess fundamentally a similar concept, but related to carbon, not necessarily for flow of goods, which was the original proposal, however many years ago that was, four years ago. So maybe here in, in closing, um, Alexis, want to think about the future of globalization and what business leaders and investors should expect in a COVID recovering global economy and specifically wanted you to address is, is Asia in the cockpit now? Have we had a fundamental shift as a result of COVID amongst the other macroeconomic consequences? What should business leaders and investors really be focusing on and thinking about as we uh, get out of this, this COVID experience? Sure. So from, you know, from a macro landscape, Asia, you know, Asia continues to be the cockpit of economic growth in the world. This is the fastest growing economies. Um, even notably, a country such as Vietnam had minimal case uh, had minimal caseloads of COVID, even though they've contended with this next wave. Um, you know what we've seen in some investing and I would say corporate policy is an extraordinary beefening up of the stance of Singapore, for example as I would say the, the premier and the preeminent gateway city um, from Asia to the West and from, from, from the West to Asia. Um, and so uh, what I would say here is as we come out of COVID, based on the conviction that trade continues is, you know, many companies will want to continue to be investing in ASEAN, for example, and in developing Asia across the world, as well as rich income Asia and, and looking to other countries such as Korea and Japan uh, and the companies from those countries to be partners um, as they continue to expand across, uh, again, these fastest growing economies in the world. And so notably also what we've seen is with the whispers or cries of protectionism um, from some countries as relates to their own industrial or post-industrial policy emerging from COVID-19, you know, notably we've seen a, a, a completely opposite direction in terms of Asia uh, with the cementing of the RCEP agreement uh, which effectively incorporated rich income Asia into the ASEAN agreement. Um, although the tariff reductions are not as, as stringent, I think it's just very meaningful that you know, Asia continues to move on. Also, when we track, uh, let's say, US FDI into Asia as a region, what's notable is that you know, even, even before the, the trade wars really started to spike in 2018, US investment in ASEAN countries was trebled at uh, in terms of FDI than it was in China. Um, so we really start to think about, you know, what is, what is the investing landscape look like here? Um, and I think that's going to be important. 
I also think for policymakers that Asia continues to be a model um, for others looking to step up their regional cohesion. And here I'm really thinking of Latin America. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, many Latin American countries have continued to contend with successive waves of the virus. But if you really think about um, an acceleration of moving goods and capital, uh, as well as people around Latin America, I think that's going to become imperative. Um, I would just also say connected to here, you know, as we think about solutions and the future of globalization, that investing in skills is going to become the absolute critical linchpin for companies and countries. Um, and, and the innovation that comes into product creation and generation and sales and development uh, across uh, a whole sector uh, landscape uh, is not coming from one country alone. And so we've looked at that as, as a global firm and in our global network, um, we've witnessed that with our clients, uh, again, regardless of sector, sector agnostic. And so the ability to invest in those key skills I think is going to become absolutely critical and that that will also be a driver of globalization in the years to come. Well, as those changes occur, I look forward to having you back on the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. Dr. Crow, it's always fascinating to talk to you and uh, we look forward to getting you to the Westminster Studios here in St. Louis for an in-person uh, podcast experience and lots of changes coming. We'll see particularly from tax policy. Obviously, my listeners are very, very interested um, in what's going to happen with the OECD discussions and the G20 and, the, and that report and that will certainly uh, change the landscape and look forward to discussing the macroeconomic impacts with you in the future. And uh, thank you very much for joining today. Thanks so much for having me, Doug. Pleasure to be with you. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Special thanks to Dr. Alexis Crow, the global leader of PwC's geopolitical investing practice for joining me today. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's international tax services leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com slash structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.